Bible reading, Joel chapter 2, verses 11 to 17, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. The day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing. Who can possibly survive? That is why the Lord says, Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. Who knows, perhaps he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of this curse. Perhaps you will be able to offer grain and wine to the Lord your God as before. Blow the ram's horn in Jerusalem. Announce a time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Gather all the people, the elders, the children, and even the babies. Call the bridegroom from his quarters and the bride from her private room. Let the priests who minister in the Lord's presence stand and weep between the entry room to the temple and the altar. Let them pray. Spare your people, Lord. Don't let your special possession become an object of mockery. Don't let them become a joke for unbelieving foreigners who say, has the God of Israel left them? Thank you very much, Lauren. Good morning, everybody. Let's pray together. Father, our prayer is simply that prayer from Ephesians 1 that Paul prayed, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we grow in the knowledge of you, so that we know you, not know information about you, but know you. So God, as Julie and I open up the scriptures today and and speak, that's what we're asking. Holy Spirit, you breathe. You breathe, you give wisdom and revelation so that we all grow in knowing who Father, Son and Spirit is and how to live for you in this season. Amen. The reading from Joel is part of uh, his letter where he prophesies the future day of the Lord and he describes it as the greatest crisis the world will ever know. I just want to pause and say that is a really important thing. We are living in a, in a season in the earth where we are being bombarded with messages about catastrophes. That, that if we don't do this, the earth is going to this and this and this and this, all these crises are going to happen. I want to uh, say to you, from a biblical point of view, the greatest crisis the world will ever face will be the day of the Lord. So be anchored in that. Don't let people who do not know Jesus, who do not have a biblical worldview, control the narrative that goes on in your heads about crisis. Be people who speak and proclaim that is nothing, whatever they're proclaiming, whatever crisis they're proclaiming, whether it be a pandemic or a climate catastrophe or whatever it might be, tell them The greatest crisis the world, the entire planet will face will be that time when the Lord Jesus splits the sky and comes. That is the day of crisis. That's what they should be preparing themselves for. That's what we should all be living our lives for. Because the book of Joel instructs us how to respond to crisis. And in the opening days of this sacred assembly, I shared this with the room, people who were in the room on Monday night, and you can watch the recording on our YouTube website. I said there is a crisis that the Lord's inviting us into in the sacred assembly, and it's actually a crisis to weep. It's a crisis, to, an invitation to weep. I made a couple of points. I'm just going to restate them this morning. I mentioned a book that's recently published called The Great De-Churching. It's a, it's a book that's published and based on American church research. And I just simply want to highlight two points from that. The book concludes that millennials are one of the largest birth cohorts in recent history. If you are a millennial, you're a member of the millennial generation if you were born sometime after 1990 into the early 2000s. Anyone in the room qualify? Anyone born after 1990? I was born before, obviously, but I think pretty much this entire block here. So, 
Okay, millennials globally are the, one of the largest birth groups in recent history and these people, having researched, said this. And this is a really sobering statement. I want you to listen really carefully. The parents of millennials, the Christian parents of millennials, were uniquely unsuccessful at passing on their faith to their children. The, par- the Christian parents of millennials were uniquely unsuccessful at passing on their faith to their children. That's a crisis. They also said in their book that before the age of 13 is the key battleground for spiritual formation. Before the age of 13 is the key battleground for spiritual formation. I'm going to encourage parents who've got children that uh, if you have got, if you feel like you're in a battle sometimes for the formation of your child's life in Christ, be encouraged because you're, if you've got children around that age and under, that is the key time. There is a fierce battle that goes on from a demonic point of view to undermine and sow lies into your children. I've shared before, and I'll just say briefly, there were things that came out of our son's mouths when they were growing up and in this age thing, things that they never heard coming out of our mouth, accusations against God, and things about what they felt about themselves were the exact opposite of all of the messaging that we had given them. And we had to sit with them and unpick the lies and confront those things with truth. And it wasn't a one-time go. So the, bat- the first crisis is this great de-churching. Uh, there is a great absence. And if you know anything actually about the church in the region of Fremantle, it is sadly devoid of many young people. Almost without, apart from new life, it is very sad reality that many of the congregations in the, in the city of Fremantle are aged and declining rapidly and without a dramatic and uh, sustained intervention of God of a new generation suddenly turning up on the doorsteps, those buildings will be physically closed probably within the next 10 years if they've got that long, simply because everybody in that congregation will have gone to heaven and there'll be no one there to even unlock the door. There's a crisis in our city. This is my point. The second crisis is what's called acedia amongst men. Um, acedia is, a, is derived from a Greek word that means uh, it's to do with a lack of care, it's to do with negligence, um, it's those kinds of things. Thomas Aquinas uh, described it this way, he said, it's a sort of a heavy sadness, a heavy sadness that presses down on a man's mind in such a way that no activity pleases him. And they think, what's the point? It's a malaise that takes away motivation to do anything. It's a numbing of the heart that robs a man of his vitality and passion. And Aquinas believed that acedia wants to accomplish two things in men. Firstly, sadness about spiritual good. Sadness about spiritual good. And secondly, disgust with activity. So let me say that again, that acedia has two goals. One, to steal the vitality and the passion of men. And secondly, to produce sadness about spiritual good and a disgust with activity. Acedia leaves men with, an, with this almost fatal lethargy, a kind of mindless oblivion, where they're just men, so many men are just numbing out. Charge your battery. That's good advice. <laughs> For all the men, charge your battery. Fill up on Jesus' juice. 
Timing's everything, isn't it? <laughs> now, let's talk about acedia and this lack of vitality and passion of men and this sadness. And I know there are some in this room that struggle with that. And I know that there are some, some wives that are really concerned about husbands who struggle with this. And Joel's answer in a crisis like this is to gather, to pray, to weep and to seek the Lord. To say, God, spare your people. Spare your people. Don't let, don't let them become this mockery. So this Joel 2 crisis is, surely is enough motivation for us to gather together in sacred assembly which is what Joel says to do, or God says through Joel. This great de-churching among teenagers and young adults, the seedier in men, the reality that uh, love is really hard, isn't it? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love people as yourself is really hard work. If it was easy, everybody would do it. And even our best efforts at, at, at loving one another often go astray. Because we have self-protective strategies. We have, we have things that we actually put around ourselves to protect us so that we don't feel pain. And I want to encourage you to say that that's actually ungodly. And you, you, you know, for me, the best example of what love should look like is the crucified saviour on the cross with his arms wide, his chest fully bared to be hurt by sinful, wicked human beings. I'm telling you, love is difficult and painful. It is hard to open yourself to love people in, in the pain of what that might feel like. You all know what I'm talking about. There are people you find easy to love. There are people you do not want to love at all. And there are people that have hurt you and wounded you. Now, I want to, be, and I'm always wanting to be, to caveat, make a caveat statement here. I'm not talking about putting yourself in the way of violence and abuse. That's not what I'm talking about. We've got a crisis of distorted and corrupted sexuality in the church. We've got fears and anxiety that control us. We have dysfunction in our homes. We are facing a crisis where the technology that we have now begun to rely on has been weaponized to steal, kill and destroy the lives of our children. And so Joel's response, God's response through the prophet Joel is to announce a time of fasting and to call the people together, all of the people the oldies, the, the kids, even the babies, bring the babies into the prayer room. If you're about to get married and this is happening on your wedding day, this is of such urgency that you postpone your wedding and come to the prayer room. And you stand in the prayer room as priests of the Most High God and you stand and you weep and you pray and you say, God, spare your people, Lord. You pray for yourself and the rest of the body of Christ and say, God, spare your people. Don't let Christian families, churches, schools and businesses become an object of mockery or a joke for atheists, new ages and others. That's our prayer. That's our cry. As I was preparing to give this little word on, on Monday, I remembered the words of a man whose name was Keith Green. He was born in 1953. He died in 1982, very young age. He's best known for his uncompromising obedience to Jesus, his music, and his passion to tell unbelievers how great Jesus is. He wrote a song, How Can They Live Without Jesus? It's a great song. Here's a few lines from it. How can they live without Jesus? How can they live without God's love? Throwing away the things that matter. They hold on to things that don't. 
Later in the song, he writes, So many laughing at Jesus while the funniest thing that he's ever done is love this stubborn, rebellious world while their hate for him just goes on. And Nathan's going to sing this song at the end of today. So the sacred assembly is the Lord's response to crisis. It's an invitation for all of us to gather together and to weep and to cry out for our households, to cry out for New Life Church, to cry out for Fremantle Christian College and to cry out for the nation. And I urge everyone who is physically able to come and meet the Lord in the prayer room during the sacred assembly. Julie's going to come up. We're going to tag team. I meant to say before I began that this morning's message has three components. That was the first bit. Here's the second bit. And then I'll come back for a brief wrap up. All right. I need a couple of volunteers, so I'm going to ask the Fleming boys to come up here. Thanks. (laughs) Oh, Liam's out. Okay. Come on then. Come on, Geordie. Okay. Guys, um, you work out, right? Yes. Good. <laughs> okay. Need you to hold one end of the rope that way, Sam, on the other end. So it's a long piece of rope, so you just have to, you know, I know you're smart, fellas, just make sure. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> awesome. That's perfect. Can you all see that? Lovely. Okay, thanks, guys. Here's the workout bit. Just hold it, okay? (laughs) All right. So my goal this morning, I have a huge challenge in front of me because in 15 minutes, I'm going to give you an overview of the seven festivals, the historical context when it was first given to the Israelites, and then the, the way Jesus fulfilled it in his first coming and what's yet to come, the future fulfillment. Have you got that? All right, and this rope is very important um, in, in explaining this. Wayne, you're going to have to hurry up. I'm going faster than you. <laughs> okay, so seven festivals. Let's go, Hannah. Got skates on up there. F- seven festivals. Let's say it together. God's rehearsals for God's people to participate in God's story centered on God's son, restoring God's creation for God's glory. That is what the seven festivals are all about. Okay? We've, we've learnt that phrase. So number one, Wayne. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. I got it. All right. Okay, in the biblical calendar, the first festival that occurs... On Nisan 14, that's the Hebrew month, is Passover. Thank you. And it's about God's mighty deliverance. It's the story. It actually happened. God's mighty deliverance of Israel from Egypt, from slavery and bondage to their Egyptian oppressors. Now, the first century fulfillment of that, Jesus is our Passover lamb. You read it, right? Crucified, buried, and resurrected on the exact days. Isn't that amazing? Nissan 14, you know, 16, 17, whatever. He did it on the exact days. So he was, he was crucified on Nissan 14. He was put in the tomb on Nissan 15. And he was resurrected. Now, unleavened bread, thank you, that's the next one, um, is actually on Nissan 16. Um, but I think you've heard me say before that every seven years or so, there are back-to-back Sabbaths. And I believe in the year that Jesus was raised from the dead, it was Nisan 17. And there are some significant occasions, events that occur throughout the Bible on Nisan 17, i.e. Noah's boat landed on Mount Ararat on Nisan 17. This is just to whet your appetite. This is going to be fast. I'm only telling you a little bit, enough to stir you, all right? So the future fulfillment of Passover is that Jesus will return as a greater Moses, a divine warrior, a miracle worker. He will rescue Israel from captivity and lead a second exodus through the wilderness and defeat the forces of evil with a series of Passover plagues. Think Revelation 16, okay? 
a series of Passover plagues. Now, some of you are going, what? There's another Passover? There's another plague thing? What's going on? Um, Jeremiah 16, 14 He says this, he prophesies the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. But instead it will be said, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them. For I will restore them to the land I gave their ancestors. Jeremiah has seen it. It's going to happen again. I don't have time, but the Habakkuk 3, that whole chapter is a second coming prophecy. Do you see before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him? Did you see that? Okay, next slide, Hannah. Unleavened bread. Wayne, you're already there. Well done. Historical. All right, Travis Snow puts it this way. We need to remember that the unleavened bread was the food that sustained Israel when they were leaving Egypt, right? It was the physical provision that carried God's people out of the land of slavery and darkness and into his holy presence, right? Okay, you can see the correlation, first century fulfillment. And just as the Israelites had to consume the unleavened bread, we also have to consume Jesus, his sacrifice for us in order to be forgiven, cleansed, made whole, and to inherit eternal life. You remember that time Jesus said in John chapter 6, I think it was, if you don't eat and drink my body and blood, and people are like, ooh, that's too hard, right? This is what he's talking about. John 6, 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Praise God. Okay, there's an ongoing fulfillment. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. No, he's not saying don't celebrate it. Celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And we know that Jesus was a pure and spotless sacrifice. He was the unleavened bread. Future fulfillment, Revelation 19, 6 to 8. There's a sound like a great multitude and they're shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Jesus is coming back. For a pure and spotless bride. First fruits. Thanks, Wayne. This is the third festival in the spring feast. That is for Israel, spring feasts, right? Okay. The historical context. We know that these feasts are mentioned in Leviticus 23. If you want to read the whole lot, go to Leviticus 23. Verse 10. God said, when you enter the land. Which land? The promised land, which is in? Yes, well, it was Canaan, but yes. I'm going to give you, oh, that I'm going to give you and you and reap its harvest. Bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. The priest is to wave it a day after the Sabbath. Richard Brooker points this out, that the first fruits represented the whole harvest. And by giving God the first fruits, the Israelites are declaring that all of the harvest belonged to him. Okay, so the first fruits offering links the festivals to their deliverance from Egypt, but also to the land that God is giving them and did give them, the promised land. So the festival of first fruits was the first taste of the agricultural abundance that would come later in the year. Okay, so Jesus fulfilled it. Paul explains, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. He is the first fruits. Guaranteeing the resurrection of all who belong to him, just like the harvest, right? Powerful stuff. Then there's a period of weeks. How many weeks? 
Seven weeks. 50 days, actually, and that's when we come to Pentecost. Thanks, Wayne. (laughs) The historical context for Pentecost, where does it happen? Mount Sinai, the encounter with God at Mount Sinai. Well done, Katrina. Okay, an encounter with God. Oh, there's all sorts of stuff happening. Thundering and lightning, large, thick cloud, a very loud trumpet blast, and then God descends on the mountain with fire and they trembled. The first century fulfillment, 10 days after Jesus returned to his father, on this same day, right, the festival of Pentecost or Shavuot in Hebrew, on that day the disciples were gathered together in the temple. And the Holy Spirit came and rested on them with tongues of fire. Same, same. The disciples who were in one accord were filled with the Holy Spirit and with power. They preached the gospel boldly. They healed the sick. They drove demons out of people. They performed signs and wonders. And 3,000 people on that one day of Pentecost were saved. Right? And the gospel began to go out. From Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and, and, and way beyond that. Interesting that Pentecost in the historical context, because they rebelled and did the whole golden calf thing, 3,000 died. On the day of Pentecost, when Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit, 3,000 were saved. Awesome. Okay, now we're here. Uh, oh, future fulfillment of this. Um, in the days leading up to Jesus' return, many will respond to the message of salvation that we're going to be telling and others. God is going to stir up a spirit of prophecy across the earth more and more. But the Bible also tells us there will be a very great harvest of souls and revival after he returns. The nations will be gathered to Jerusalem after he returns. The spirit of God will be poured out on all people and the the renewal of the earth will begin after he returns. This is speaking of the ultimate fulfillment. Joel 2, 28 and 32. And afterward, after what? After you've returned to me with all your heart. Remember what Wayne was talking about this morning. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Now he's talking to Israel here specifically. Have they done this? Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, he references... Joel, but only the first bit. So there's a partial fulfillment on the day of Pentecost when Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit, but there is going to be an ultimate fulfillment when God pours his spirit out on all flesh. Are you excited? Yes, Yes, it's really exciting. Israel's autumn festival. So these these are what we call the spring festivals, and this is tied together through, through the counting of the Omer, these 50 days. Okay, which links these four in in the first half of the year, links them together. Then in the second half of the year, actually in the autumn, okay, Israel's autumn festivals, we have the final three festivals. Historical context for trumpets. On the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. So the festival day of trumpets was the commemoration of Israel's encounter with the Lord at Mount Sinai. Well, because all it says is that they had to have a rest and remember through the blasting of the trumpet. Remember, remember what happened at Mount Sinai because you see at Mount Sinai God entered into covenant he entered into betrothal and there was a there was a mighty blast of a trumpet so they're told here now remember who you are remember who you belong to remember that you have a covenant and God has a covenant with you the fulfillment through Jesus well I'm going to direct you to Hebrews chapter 12 Verses 18 to 25. 
The writer of Hebrews says he, he compares the spiritual encounter with Jesus Christ now to the physical encounter that Israel had on Mount Sinai. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that's burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. You've come to Mount Zion. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to God, the judge of all things, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You go and read the whole thing. But verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Our God is a consuming fire. The Festival of Trumpets then is an annual reminder that we've been bought with a price, that we belong to Jesus, he is our king, and it's an invitation at, on Tishri 1, that's, the, that's the, the month, the Hebrew month, the first of that month with the blast of the trumpet, remember we are betrothed to God, remember the marriage covenant. Future fulfillment? Well, trumpets were used throughout the biblical year um, during the appointed festivals, you know, all kinds of things. At the start of each month, a, pl- a trumpet was blown. When they were called to battle, a trumpet was blown. When they were called to gather in a solemn assembly, a trumpet was blown. Uh, to crown a king, the trumpet was blown. So in terms of fulfillment, we see trumpets being blown in Scripture to signal events related to the Lord's return. And the events related to the Lord's return are not all like all happy days. Let's put it that way. First Thessalonians four sixteen and 17, Paul writes this. This is announcing Jesus' return for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will be with the Lord forever. There's a reason that trumpets is on the first day of Tishri. There was a reason that each of these festivals had a particular day that it was to be celebrated. Think about that. Secondly, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, another announcement. In a flash, says Paul, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Zechariah 9, another prophetic scripture, which is a trumpet call to battle. Then the Lord will appear. This is his return. This is the day of his return. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet and he will march in the storms of the south. The Lord, their God, that's Israel's God, will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. Isaiah 27, 12 and 13, in that day, what day? The day, the time frame of his return, it's not just a single day, it means in the season, in that time frame of his return. The Lord will thresh. He will thresh from the flowing Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt and you Israel will be gathered up one by one. And in that day a great trumpet will sound and those who were perishing in Assyria in the north and those who were exiled in Egypt in the south will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem because he will gather them up one by one. He's going to march. Psalm 98.6 refers to the coronation of the king. Make music to the Lord with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord the king. Revelation 11.15 the last book in the Bible, John's vision, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said the kingdom. So there's, there's seven trumpets, right, in the, in the judgment series. This is the seventh trumpet. This is the last trumpet. Is this the last trumpet that Paul's talking about? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord 
our God and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Trumpets. He will be crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The next festival, the 10th day of the seventh month of Tishri, we have the Day of Atonement. Now, historically, now we're going to speak on this Sunday week because that's the day, that's the Sunday we celebrate atonement. But just very simply, when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he desired a place. He wanted to establish a place where he could dwell in their midst. So he gave them instructions about how to build the tabernacle, right? Remember that? The tabernacle. And the day of atonement is the God-given day for the annual cleansing of that place and that people. Really important to understand that the day of atonement is very much about cleansing the place and the articles. Really important. There's a reason for that. We often think about the Day of Atonement. We sort of connect it to Passover and we think it's just another day when the blood and, and, you know, and the sins are forgiven and that's it. There's only one category of sins, if you read Leviticus, that are forgiven on the Day of Atonement. It's the sins that are committed in ignorance. Leviticus 16, make it when the, in this way, the, the high priest will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. Yeah, so it's almost like a, an afterthought, whatever, the sin, whatever their sins are, the issue is that the place of my dwelling is unclean. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, another place, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. It needs to be said that neither the atonement or the many purity practices improve the moral or spiritual condition of the people or their eternal standing with God. They only dealt with the physical pollution that sins committed in ignorance caused and the unclean practices in the physical space where God lived. Do you remember that verse where God says, keep your camp Holy, because I want to walk around in the midst of you. Hebrews 9, 7 to 14. There's a great explanation. There's a great like recap or thinking back on this. Only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. This is an illustration, says the the writer, pointing to the present time, Jesus. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. Christ came as high priest of the good things. And with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. Israel acknowledged God as their king on trumpets and on the day of atonement, they solemnly and actively made a place for the holy God to dwell. So the future fulfillment, well, just going to Zechariah. Do you know what? There are lots of, all these scriptures I'm using, they're just examples. There are many that confirm the same things. But the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah 13, on that day, that is when Jesus returns, the season of his return, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land and they will be no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. Why? Why? 
because the Lord has come to reign on the land, in the land. And there's going to be a temple that is built and eventually the new Jerusalem, the holy city, is going to descend. And it's going to be back full circle to the way God created it in the beginning. Amen. I saw the holy city. This is Revelation 21. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The glory and honor of the nations, skip to the bottom there, will be brought into it and nothing impure will ever enter it. So we see that. Do you see that? These themes carrying on to their ultimate fulfillment. How rich is this? Right? And then we've got the festival of shelters. This is the last one. This is number seven. You might know it as tabernacles or the Hebrew word is Sukkot. And it is the 15th day of the seventh month, Tishri. These are all in Tishri. The historical context. Well, the annual cycle of appointed times begins and ends with a seven-day festival. And shelters is linked to the annual agricultural harvest of the seventh month. So there's harvest here, first fruits, there's barley, and then there's harvest here. There's wheat being harvested here. And then there's all the beautiful fruits and pomegranates and dates and olives and all that harvest happens down this end. The command is to be joyful, Deuteronomy 16, chapter, chapter 15. Celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the works of your hands and your joy will be complete. So the festival of shelters is a time to remember Israel's exodus from Egypt. Passover is time to remember Israel's exodus, sorry, Israel's exodus from Egypt and trumpets commemorated Israel's Sinai encounter and the festival of shelters specifically commemorated Israel's time of wandering in the wilderness. And hence, there's this command in Leviticus 23, this is related to shelters, live in temporary shelters for seven days so that your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This earth is a temporary shelter. This is a temporary tabernacle, a temporary place of inhabitants, just as the shelters that they built, the tents they dwelt in, in the wilderness were temporary. And God says, remember that. Because things are going to change. And I did dwell among you in the wilderness, in the, tam- in the tabernacle. But the ultimate fulfillment is God with man, the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven and all the nations of the world going up to Jerusalem. As it says in Zechariah, they will be called upon all the nations to celebrate the feast of shelters. And if they don't, what will happen? There'll be no rain on the land. As Jesus disciples the nations, so let us be discipled now, right? Let's get ahead of the game. Jesus is going to disciple all the nations in all of this. Wow. At its deepest level, shelters points forward to how the glory of God will again dwell on the earth. It celebrates the coming day when Jesus will reign as Israel's king and our king. In a vision, Ezekiel heard the voice of someone speaking from inside the future Jerusalem temple during the Messianic age. He said, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. And this is where I will live among the Israelites forever. And finally, Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And that's an overview of the biblical shelter uh, festivals. Thank you, guys. Uh, we need them to stay there. Oh, do but, we need yeah, them to stay but, there? But, yeah, give them a round of applause. They're doing an amazing, amazing job. So, and... Uh, <laughs> You work out right. Uh, many, of the, many of you will have already worked out that this is not to scale. Uh, and actually, from a Bible point of view, time is not linear, but rather cyclical in, in, a, in that kind of way. Hebrew, in, in the yeah. Hebrew worldview. And that's why when Julie was unpacking it, and the, the, the historic, yeah. the Israel, the connection to Israel, the yeah. Jesus, and then the future fulfillment. The it's themes like repeat. Some, this multi-layered thing. Mm. Okay. And one of the questions that people often ask us is, uh, are you the, you, the anti-Easter Christmas church? Uh, because you do the biblical festivals. So you got a handout as you came through the door where we, we tried to articulate uh, some Information that will be helpful for you, equip you to answer that question. If you just go to page two on that, on that handout, and it's really the middle one that I want to draw your attention to. But if you think about this, so on this timeline, where does Christmas go? Christmas goes... Yep, we have to... Christmas in December is right down there. Uh, now, many of you know that the date in December is not the only date that the church globally celebrates the birth of Jesus. If that's new information for you, uh, please just go do a bit of research. There's many that celebrate it in January. So don't be, don't be thinking, oh, if we don't do it on December 25th, we're, we're out of step with the, with the entire church, because it isn't. But actually, where should the birth of Jesus go? Well, it could go, it either, you'll see in your leaflet that we've, it could go shelters or it could actually be Tishri 1, Day of Trumpets. There's, there's some differences of opinion on that. And where does Easter go? It's kind of, it's sort of, it's kind of, kind of around there. So you can see that actually Easter has a bit more connection. Uh, to God's festivals, to the biblical festivals, uh, but Christmas doesn't. And because might... we know he's yeah. done this, right? Yeah. So Easter is, you know, much more, okay, we get that. We get that. There's so, a little less going on here. There's a little less going on down on this end. So just to read that statement is that we teach that the whole world lives in God's story. This is God's story. Not our story, we didn't make it up, we didn't create it, none of us did. We all live in it. And the annual events of Christmas and Easter, they lack indispensable parts of God's story. Such as God's covenants and the central role of Israel and the glorious return of Jesus as the bridegroom, king and judge over the entire cosmos. See, those things aren't there, are they? They're missing. They're talking about his death and resurrection at Easter, which is very, very important and, and should be done. And we're speaking at Christmas about his birth, but where is, where is the declaration of his return? As the king and the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our God and of his Messiah. Those kinds of things are missing. What we wanted to show you this morning is God's story is far richer than human-created alternatives, even as well-meaning and as well-intentioned that they would be. And if you, and when you get to read the brochure in full, you'll see we've kind of we've just given you a real summary of how did we get from the biblical festivals to Christmas and Easter. We've given you just a real snapshot of that. You can spend decades of your life researching that if you would like to, and reading copious materials. Um, but the, it's such a beauty. Yeah, there's so such much. Such a richness. There is. Mm. And I, I remember coming into this understanding myself and the way it enriched my faith. It's just so enriching to see that everything that God has unfolded throughout history and using the nation of 
Israel to display his story primarily and then bringing us Gentiles into it to ultimately pray for the salvation of Israel and their ultimate day of atonement when they are given a spirit of grace and supplication to cry out, they see Jesus, right? And there's salvation and then there is cleansing in Jerusalem. It's fabulous. Zechariah chapters 12, 13 and 14 are powerful chapters to read and meditate on if you want to kind of grasp that that timeline. But there are so many prophetic scriptures. Honestly, I have given you 1%. Yeah. 1% on the screen this morning. Proverbs 25 mm. says, It is the glory of a king, of God, sorry, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. And it is the glory of kings, priesthood of, right? To search it out. It is our joy. You know, God, it's like when you play hide and seek with your kids. You're like, oh, warmer, warmer, warmer. No, cold. It's kind of like, I, I kind of get that feeling that God's like, come on, search me out. Search me out. I want to be known by you. Please thank these amazingly strong, robust young men. Just put that down and we'll, uh, we'll sort it out. Nathan. Yes. So, well, it's been, there's been a lot of content this morning, a lot to, uh, to give you. And Nathan's going to come and close our celebration with this song. Are we, are we going to join you? Are you going to... Yep, we can... The words will, be, will the words be on the screen? The words will be on the screen. So, let's stand. Let's stand together. Let's do this. Come on. It's all together. Let's stand together. Let's... First of all, let's thank God for the richness of the amazing, His amazing story that we're all part of. Uh, just begin to speak out thanks to God for who He is, what He's done, this amazing story, the way it's crafted. We stand in awe of you, God. We stand in awe of what you have done in the past. Mm. What, you've, what you've done through Israel, what you've done through Christ and what is yet to come. We stand in awe and say, Lord, there really isn't anyone more worthy than you.